Right now on Tech Radio, it's all gone mad in America. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're welcome to episode 1005, where this week we're talking about the Apple Vision Pro, some crazy AI stories from the states and the election there, and an incredible deep fake scam that netted a cool $25 million. Plus, our guest, distinguished engineer with Fujitsu, Kara O'Carroll, will be filling us in on tech that just can't seem to get going. From TechCentral.ie. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. I'm Dusty. Joining me as always is our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson. Niall, some great stories in TechCentral.ie this week about kids. Trend Micro uh, kicking off because they did a whole video kind of a contest asking kids how AI might help them in the future. What was their opinion? Yeah, this is the annual Trend Micro What's Your Story competition, which is basically a video production competition. Uh, the kids uh, at some national school level, mostly national school level, some second level, um, go off and they make uh, little two minute videos uh, and sort of submit them on a on a team. This year's theme was how might technology or AI help you in the future? And the winning entry was called Perception from St. Joseph mm-hmm. National School in Ballyhigh in County Kerry. And it's very funny. It's uh, basically... Uh, a, a young kid asking his grandfather, who happens to be another kid with lots of grey, <laughs> what, what they think of technology and, oh, in my day, there was none of this. And look at these kids looking for signal all the time. It's very charming. Uh, I recommend um, if you can find it, just go, go on and have a watch of it. It's, it's fun. Grand, the link is on techcentral.ie for you. Also, Sidero is encouraging uh, STEM programs in schools. And I love these stories because it's the one thing that I hear from uh, people in business and especially in tech is that we just can't get people and especially girls uh, or females, I should say, to, to come into the industry. So what are Sidero doing to help change this? Yeah, Sidero have, uh, they, they're piloting what they're calling their Ignite program uh, STEM program, it's being rolled out in Cloche Ciaran in Athlone County, Roscommon uh, for transition year students. And it is basically just, can we improve the overall level of digital literacy? And can we encourage uh, more girls to pursue careers in STEM? So another great story and hopefully the kind of thing that will end up rolling out uh, all over the country. Now, we mentioned videos. So one of the videos that you have to watch on YouTube, just search for Casey Neistat, because he has been testing the Apple Vision Pro. Now, we've had loads of people going out and spending three and a half grand or whatever it is on on, on this thing and going, here it is, and I'm unboxing it, and I'm plugging it in, and here's me using it, and here's screenshots of what I can see. And it's, it's kind of... Casey went off and did something completely different. Do you want to describe it or shall I? Well, okay, the short version is, he went for a walk around New York City with the Vision Pro on his head, <laughs> looking like I don't know what. But he did have a few very interesting points about testing it. Because, as we know, one of the wonderful features about the Vision Pro is its sensitivity to movement, because mm. this is what Apple is calling a, a spatial operating system, right? So it's mm. all based on reading movements, etc. However, when uh, Mr. Neistat, uh, to, to me, Casey, to you, apparently, uh, got on the subway. It noticed, it misread the movement on the subway train as being kind of a physical movement, right? Mm. right. So it didn't work as well when, um, you know, despite the fact that you were sitting, it could detect the movement of the train, which meant that you sort of lost control of the, of the device, which is really interesting. Now, that said, I mean, if you're walking around New York with three and a half grand's worth of, you know, a VR headset on your face, I don't want to say you're looking for trouble, but you're not looking for best wishes. Well, um, that's what I, I thought, but he did have at least two camera people with him and he was wearing a big yellow high-vis vest on him. So He was, yeah. And he was putting his arms out at, at one point. <laughs> Yeah. Trying not but, to fall over. But do you know what I thought was was uh, funny was because we've seen the whole thing about the Apple Vision Pro is that you can put it on, but you can be aware of what is happening in the world around mm. you because there are cameras on front of it that would show on the screen, and this and you can get lost in a mix of reality and what is showing on the screen. 
And he took that to the extreme by actually walking around wearing this like it was a pair of sunglasses and walking down the street and going the subway and the whole thing. Um, And he said at the end of the video, and I thought this was kind of interesting, there were two points. He said, firstly, after using it for quite a while, his brain clicked in to kind of going, oh, okay, whatever. This is just real life. I can see people walking down the road and all that kind of stuff. And I just happen to have a 56-inch, you know, large screen following me around so I can watch Mr. Beast videos or whatever. And I've got a keyboard over there as I'm walking along in the street. And he said it's like it became very natural, very quick. Obviously, the form factor just can't stay. But he said, what if one day we get a set of spectacles, glasses, sunglasses or whatever that is able to replicate that? Wow. He says, that's when you're getting into computing. Yeah. One of the things I learned about virtual reality is how quickly your brain takes to reading something as being Mm. normal and natural. Mm. Even things in VR that didn't have great graphics, whatever. My brain was just like, no, this is a real situation. Um, You know, behave yourself. Because like I've been on things where it's like, you know, a plank of wood between two buildings, just walk from one to the other. And there's nothing wrong. You know, there's nothing wrong. But your brain is like, if you step to the left or the right, you are going to fall and you're going to die. Yep. That's just how your brain mm-hmm. registers the threat. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is fascinating. And I can well understand how quickly it would take, how, how quickly your brain would adapt. Because as we know, our brains are, you know, they're plastic. You know, they're very good at adapting to the situation around us and in, indeed to its own, um, you know, as to whether the brain itself is compromised or not. One of my favourite things to do with a VR headset is roller coaster rides. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I get motion sickness, even though I'm just sitting there on the couch. But as you say, it tricks the brain uh, yep. and uh, and the way that it works. Uh, not all good, though, for Apple Vision Pro this week. Uh, there are many people up in arms, and I don't blame them, OK? Because like much of our tech these days, you need some kind of a pin or code to activate the device or work the device, okay? Hmm. The problem with the Apple Vision Pro is that if you forget your code and you need to reset the password, guess how you do it? Uh, Ooh, turn off and on again. Factory reset. No, you have to go back to an Apple store and they will in-person reset it. And if there is no Apple store, you have to put it in the mail. Do you remember? Unpost in a box and send it away where they will reset it and then they will send it back to you. Oh, that's not great, is it? That is that is not. Now, you can go on Apple all you want about enhanced security, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. But that is the kind of inconvenience that is, forget it. Especially if you've dropped nearly four grand on the darn thing. Well, and you know, so adhere to our, our advice, our always forever advice, Never yep. buy the first generation. Ne- never buy the odd number one. Always buy the even number one. So get the Apple Vision mm. Pro 2 or the 4 or the 6. Yep. As we go. Yep. Other stories this week. The ESB. Now, I think this is fascinating because I was talking to somebody in wind generation. They were talking about something similar to this. Uh, but the ESB have got a new power facility in pool bag. What makes this different? Yeah, one of the big problems in generating energy is, you know, what what do you do with it? You know, if you have too much, uh, I mean, we know kind of what happens when you, you know, when you have too little. I mean, you you end up with warnings of a brownout or a blackout, uh, and this is indeed one of the main problems that we have with data centers because they're putting uh, an inordinate um, stress on the national grid, which was never set up to mm-hmm. uh, to manage, you know, such facilities with massive. Uh, energy concerns. So uh, again, it was one of the things that uh, I think the Amber Center out in Trinity is really looking at is look trying to find better ways to uh, to store energy. Well, the ESB has gone and invested 300 million euro. Uh, they're working with a company called Fluence and um, they're also working with Kirby Group and Powercom Group. Um, and their first uh, such project is in Poolbeg and basically building giant batteries so, you know, they're looking to uh, battery number one, if you will, will have a capability of holding about 75 megawatts, which is two hours of energy for the entire country. Mm. Pretty impressive. Isn't it? I mean, two hours, you've got you've got two hours to sort yourself out uh, if, <laughs> if there's a power issue. Um, but no, only only one of many 
Uh, so between that and microgrids, possibly powering data centers, data centers also, you know, pretty interesting things like solar mm. uh, as well. So it's nice to see another solution come along and to see the level of investment that's going on as well. Very positive. Speaking of data centres, uh, another thing that gobbles up uh, electricity is Bitcoin mining for whatever mm. reason. But anyway, this is what it's known for. Uh, a new study out this week has shown the... Remind me now, data centres in Ireland gobble up how, what percentage of our national energy is just for data centres? Oh, goodness, I can't remember offhand, it, but it's it's a significant amount. Is it like 10% it, or something? No, I think it's more than that. I think it might be 20%. Right. Possibly okay. even 30 or something. But I mean, it's a huge number, okay? Uh, in the States, now not data centres, all right? Purely Bitcoin mining, all right? Nothing else, just Bitcoin uses 2% of all power in the United States of America. Wow. That wow. is huge. They've had a massive jump in the States of, of Bitcoin mining because in China, they came down with a whole load of new regulations and people went, right, uh, time to go off to the States. And so they've had a huge influx in the last three years of Bitcoin miners. Uh, in 2020, 3% of all Bitcoin was mined in the States. Now it's 38%. Mm, yeah. And, and just to correct both of us, it's 18% of all the power generation in Ireland goes to data centres. Data centres. Which it's, it's is incredible. Incre it's incredible. <laughs> Do you know what makes it's me laugh? It's <laughs> Do you know what makes me, what makes me laugh about this to a certain extent, right, is that we've had all the news headlines this week about it being the warmest January in history since records oh. began, all right? The earth is heating up, all right? And a lot of it is to do with things like data centers and like Bitcoin mining and stuff like that. And we are generating all of this power and heat in order to replace paper, which doesn't generate any heat at all. And do you know the other thing about paper money? You can't hack it. Have you ever mm -hmm. tried to hack into a 20 euro note? Impossible. Not great. If you, if you want to try and paint over it or thing over it to turn it into a 20, turn a 10 into a 20. It's not, it's not easily done. <laughs> That's it. So, uh, so yeah, so uh, the Biden administration now is uh, requiring uh, large Bitcoin miners to register so they can keep an eye on uh, on what's going on. I'm sure it's to keep an eye on their power usage. I'm quite sure it's more like who's mining Bitcoin and how much are they doing? Like, you know, that's, and can that's we find them? Way. Speaking of the states... Ton of crazy stories going on over there mm. at the moment uh, to do with AI and elections and all kinds of stuff. Uh, firstly, Meta is, I, I thought this is a silly story in the first place, and then I kind of thought about it, mm, maybe not. Um, Meta is going to label AI generated images across this platform. So, including, you know, I think WhatsApp and uh, Instagram and whatever, all right? Um, because they want to make it absolutely plain to people that this is an AI generated image. So, this image of Donald Trump uh, walking out out of a prison cell with only one leg was generated by AI, just in case you were wondering about the leg. Um, but then again, you know, people don't pay attention. You know, we, we half look at things and you don't notice things. Uh, so I think having some kind of an AI thing on the image is quite good uh, because it can be, it's like you can't believe anything of what you see or anything of what you hear. There was an old phrase. Did your parents ever use that phrase? Believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see? Huh. Okay. No. Did you, but, you never but it's fair. It's my true. Dad used, my dad used to say that all the time. My, my phrase is now, don't believe anything you hear and nothing you see. <laughs> well, <laughs> only you trust your smell. Do you know what's hilarious about this story? Well, what? It's, it's the fact that Mesh's guidelines... Uh, are that they have to, and this is, these are their own guidelines proposed externally. I mean, that's a discussion for another day and it, it's something that's coming down the line. Um, it's okay. Uh, if something is AI generated, it's in contravention of our, our terms mm. uh, and potentially damaging to, you know, people's lives and our democracy and that kind of thing. Um, and it should be, uh, it should be moderated. It should be removed. Now, however, what happened in the case of the recent Joe Biden um, thing where he was originally, um, uh, the, the idea was that his granddaughter voted and he pinned a I just voted badge, a badge onto on her, her. Uh, lapel. Right? Yeah. And, and then somebody, somebody looped it up. 
Yeah, somebody manipulated it to make it look like he was molesting her. Yeah. Um, which which is disgraceful. Um, however, it did not contravene Facebook's uh, content moderation terms because it was generated by a person, not an AI. Which, you know, the mind is blown. It's like, which do you think is a bigger threat to democracy, like an emerging technology like AI or some mm. nut job in their basement? Yeah. With a copy uh, of, you know, uh, Adobe Premiere. I, I actually think it's the nut job in the, in the basement and Adobe. So uh, close down Adobe, down with this sort of thing. Though <laughs> 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 no, you are, that that is interesting with the Biden video, the way they did it. Also, uh, Biden, the, 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 this is where they are using AI in the States. They have this thing in the States, right, where you will get robots calling you, okay, pre-recorded things and the phone will ring in the house and because I stayed with my sister-in-law there and you'll answer it and you kind of go, hello, and it goes, hi, this is such and such from blah, blah, blah company and we just want to tell you about blah, 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 and whatever. And like, there's no conversation. They're literally just talking to you on the phone, right? When it comes yeah. around to elections, okay, they will do that with the politicians, okay? So it'll be like, you know, and, and this is literally what happened, okay, uh, in the States. Somebody used AI to set up one of these robocalls and the call went something along the lines of, and I'm making this up, but this is the, the gist of it, right? Uh, you would ask the phone and go, hello, this is President Joe Biden calling you. I just want to task you to, uh, with the upcoming presidential primary elections uh, happening in your state to stay at home. Don't vote. We're confident of winning. We don't need your vote. Just stay home. Don't vote. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you can guess it's the other side who are, who are doing this. But the fact that they used AI to fake Joe Biden's voice and then make the robocalls, you know, that's kind of scary. But here's where it gets even scarier. Here's the story of the week, all right? Away from America in the elections, okay? A scam in Hong Kong. Incredible. Okay, this is just this poor guy, right? Uh, who is? I mean, he's, he's relatively high up in the in the chain chain of command. Okay, but he's getting emails uh, where he is to meet with online with the UK chief financial officer of the of the bank. Okay, so he's kind of thinking, oh God, what's all this about? Ba ba ba. He jumps on the video call. All right, uh, and he recognizes the the CFO because I mean he's well known in the company, and there's several other people who are well known in the company, uh, and he is like, okay, granted, and they're kind of they're quite pressured, and they're kind of going, uh, John, can you introduce yourself to the team? Uh, and he'll go, hi, I'm John, and I do blah 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 blah, and they go, okay, grand. Listen, uh, we have a situation here. We need to make a couple of transfers. Uh, can you do this for us now? I'll give you the instructions, and he'll kind of go, uh, well, I should really, dude. <laughs> you know, we need to do this. It's an emergency. That's why we're calling you. This this is the gist of the conversation. So he went, mm. okay, what are the details? So he gave all the details. There are 15 different transfers. $25 million later, boom, gone. Thanks for your help. Uh, you've helped save the day. Your employee of the month, blah, 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 blah. I'll be talking to the head of the office in, in Hong Kong and saying how brilliant you are. Oh, your man puts the phone there. And then he kind of goes, that was a bit weird. And then the next day he goes, I haven't heard anything more about that. And then the next day he starts to dig into it. And then the day after he suddenly realises that the 25 million has gone. Like, thin air. Stolen. He was completely deep fake scammed. I'm sure there's a word for it, all right? But what the scammers did was they found out who he was. They found out what he liked, his email address, his phone number, the whole thing, so that they knew stuff about him as an employee. And then they were able to use public video of well-known people within the company, including the UK's chief financial officer. And they were able to create avatars, real-time, real-time avatars of these people to impersonate them and then set up the video call with this poor guy. Of course, he's looking at the video and he thinks, well, of course that is, you know? Yeah. Um and 25 million gone. It's it's just the level and the standard that they're at these days is just boom. Yeah, well, my understanding of the story is there was a phishing attack on this guy initially. He was sent a phishing email yeah. and he was smart enough not to, you know, click on it. <gasps> then, oh my goodness, it gets worse. Go on. So this is like, you know, attempt two to extort company via this yeah. poor gentleman. Yeah. Uh, and that's what worked. So 
Here's an interesting thing about corporate culture that this, uh, that this case throws up. Mm. Like, what level of interaction do you have with senior executives, with board level, with whatever? If you're a cog, you know, in middle management or what have you, you've never met the guys at executive. You don't probably know what they sound like. Um, you know, I mean, if, um, you know, somebody's voice is manipulated, do you, do you actually know? Yeah, I mean, you might have seen them at like a large corporate event or something like that where they're giving a presentation, um, yeah. but it's amplified and distorted and all this yeah. kind of thing. Or, or, or you might sound have met, different. You might have met them briefly, either at an event yeah. or in a corridor or something. Hello, this is such a nice to meet you. Okay, bye bye. Boom. And, and you're gone. Yeah. So very little yeah. interaction. Yeah. So if the voice is, you know, isn't right, you, you might know. If somebody has, uh, you know, very distinctive mannerisms, you might know. Um, you know, it could be, you know, a, a stick figure with the right face on it uh, and it might be convincing to you, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas, I mean, we've we've lived and worked with small companies all our lives, more or less. Mm. I mean, you know who your line manager is. You oh, know yeah, who the guy at the top is. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe you have regular conversations with them. If mm. you're in a large corporate structure where you've never sort of uh, engaged with these people... Um, yeah. You know, how are you to protect yourself? So there's some very simple um, self-protection measures you can sort of, uh, you can enact with this thing, right? Because this guy was basically sucked into this fake meeting where people were talking to each other and then he was asked to do something, right? Uh, so he was basically quite passive in in the whole process because it was people above him having conversations. I mean, naturally, you're just going to, you know, listen to what decision is being made. I mean, you know, if you're the low person on the totem pole, of course you're going to keep your mouth shut. Mm. You know, just let the executives make the big decisions. That's what they're there for. So uh, apparently, if you can find a way to insert yourself into the meeting, if, you know, something is a little bit screwy, a little bit odd, you're not going through, you know, the usual channels for things, um, you know, maybe the URL that you've sent, it looks a little hinky. Mm. Try and engage with people in the meeting. And see what happens. Like, will they ignore you completely and keep talking over your head? And that's that's a pretty good sign of something being a little off, a little wonky. Either that or, or you know, total rudeness, but that's un- mm. Even if you talk out of place, you might get people looking at you going, oh, that's a bit. You're, you're, yeah. you're not yeah. meant to be talking. I think, though, uh, if I was in that position myself, it, it's easier. What you say is correct and you're absolutely right, but I think it's easier said than done. Because really, if you are, if you've got, you know, a really big wig from 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 a corporate who's sitting there, you're not going to give them grief. You really? just and and especially because we're Irish. I mean, we don't give anybody grief. Do you know what I mean? You can't well, you can't even yeah. you can't even tell the, the 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 person in the clothes store that you don't like the shirt. You go, I don't oh, know, I'll have fine. it for another it's size. Fine. It's fine. Yeah, I just I don't have anything yeah. to go with it. You know, you would never go. Yeah. No, it's but ugly. I'm not buying it. You never yeah. saying that. It doesn't. It doesn't fit. I don't care that it's the last one on sale. I yeah, can't I close the buttons. I, I, a New Zealand guy was giving out to me about that uh, once because we were looking for uh, an apartment and we were kind of going, oh, yeah, we saw this place and we just said to your one, well, I don't know, we'll have to have a think about it. We'll give you a shout like in, in, in a day or two. He goes, why did you do that? He said, why did you just go, nah, not for me. <laughs> I'm kind of going, yeah, makes sense. I think this year is going to be a really interesting year, a really, really interesting year because finances appear to be up. Stock market has gone up. Bitcoin has gone up, blah, blah, blah. Well, this week anyway. Uh, we have got a number of huge elections which are happening all over the world, okay? There's states and the European elections and all kinds of things. Uh, so there's going to be trouble with that, with AI and all kinds of scams going on. Uh, we've got wars breaking out left, right and centre. China could invade uh, Taiwan. Russia have invaded uh, Ukraine. We have what's going on in, uh, in Palestine uh, at the minute. It's like, you know, it's kind of, it just seems like it's all a cauldron of activity that's just going to boil Everything over. Everything is wide open to manipulation. Anything and can happen if this people's year. critical faculties are turned off because they only want to see things that they agree with. Yeah. And this is very, very dangerous. And the oh, yeah. amount of times I've had to tell my mother not to believe stuff she sees on Facebook. Um, and, you know, thankfully she doesn't. But every so often you just need reminding because, you know, I might get told, oh, and there was this news story on Facebook. I'm like, put the brakes on. It yeah. was a lie. 
Yeah, yeah, true enough. Anyway, it was on Facebook. Listen, it was a lie. There you go. Listen, let's leave the uh, news for there for this week. Nile Kitson, as always, thanks for keeping us up to date. Share the knowledge and invite a friend to listen. Search Apple, Spotify or YouTube for Tech Radio Ireland. Why is it that some tech companies succeed when others fail? Is it the hardware? Could it be the hype? The public expectation? How often do we see the cases of Emperor's new casing, as it were? Cara O'Carroll is a distinguished engineer with Fujitsu and she had a chat with Niall Kitson about the tech that just can't seem to get going. Carol, when we talk about sort of change or inventions, this wonderful quote comes to mind for me, which is, how does something happen? Well, very slowly and then all at once. And that's kind of how we see things with technology, isn't it? It's absolutely, you know, it it seems to strike you suddenly that technology arrives, that it wasn't there yesterday and now it's here today. And how on earth did that happen? And it's, it's really exciting when that happens. But it's not the reality of what goes on, you know, behind the scenes. Technology takes a long time to evolve. And I think we'll probably talk about some of those examples today. It, if I was to put a phrase on it, I'd say it's not fast and furious, alluding to a certain franchise I like, but it's more slow and steady wins the race. So technology takes years to evolve quite often. It's it's very rare that something is conceived in a week and produced in a week and goes mass market in a week. That's not really how technology works. In fact, most technology can take years to evolve. and It evolves through many, many iterations. And an iteration is basically you did something, you tried it out, you got some feedback, you made some improvements, you tried it again. And as each iteration continues, it gets better and better. And then there's a phrase which is called the tipping point. And the tipping point is when there's a really large acceptance of the technology. We saw that, of course, with ChatGPT at the end of 2022, especially into January 2023. And that's when an iteration has really, really struck gold. It's when something really gets popular. And that's, it's at that tipping point that you feel that pace. You feel that the technology has sometime, somehow just bursts alive. But technology is really an evolution. It, it's a journey. And it's, it's all about, you know, exploring the potential of technologies as they get created. And it's great that technology is a, a wonderful field because there's always new inventions. With every invention, then you start exploring the potential. What could it be used for? What might the use cases be? Who might be interested? And then if you think, okay, that looks like it might be interesting. Is it like designed for a niche or is it designed for mainstream? Will it be Everyone, every consumer will want it, or just businesses or certain sectors. And then when you've got that bit figured out, then you need to look at funding. So is someone going to pay you to keep developing it? So will it get out of the labs? Will it get into the hands of users? Once the users start getting it, you're going to get more and more feedback back into more iterations. You're going to keep improving it. And then, of course, see how they take off. So is someone then actually going to pay money for whatever you've developed? Um, the thing is, you know, with technology developments, it's about knowing after the initial excitement of inventing the technology, why would you want it? Why is someone likely to spend their time with that technology? Why would somebody maybe pay for that technology, whether that's in hard money or maybe it's advertising revenues, whatever it is. And why do you think it's a good idea versus the people who you might think want to use it and have the people who might be the end users actually had a chance to use it. Because sometimes you'll see testing on a small group of people which don't even really represent the end users. So knowing the why is really important. Understanding it's a process and the journey is really important. Um, Making sure that as you develop it, you're really clear on what you're developing. So being really clear on the needs and the use cases. And also thinking about the role of the end user, what kind of a fit do you need for them? Like, are you expecting that everybody has 20-20 vision, for example? Are you expecting that everybody will be able to have the dexterity to handle a device, if it's a device, for example? And also thinking about what success. So is, for you, for success, is it um, a certain number of 
units sold or a certain number of devices sold or licenses sold. So what is success? Or is it that my new solution is used in the medical industry, for example, to help a patient understand what surgery they're going to have? Or is it something, some new wearable that they're going to have that'll be connected, for example? So what is success? That has to be articulated as well. And then the last thing I want to bring out is that, of course, developing technology is expensive. So if you figured out a product, you've invented something, you found maybe a use case for it, um, you might have tested on a few users, you're getting good feedback. Well, you might find then the thing that is the last thing to consider is how much is anyone going to pay for it? Because technology development costs a lot of money. And the early adopters will absolutely be paying for what we would call a proof of concept, you know, bring testing out the technology, bring it to market. And we can see that, you know, early versions of technology sometimes cost an awful lot. And I have some examples of that. Um, so, and then, you know, technology gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper the more the volumes increase. So technology doesn't happen overnight. That pace of change is kind of in the eye of the beholder. It's when that tipping point arrives, then all of a sudden, you know, the technology is seen to take off, but it could have been a process of years and years and years behind that. And there is those sort of two avenues there that you've alluded to uh, when it comes to defining success. One is what's the conversation around this piece of technology? Are people actually talking about it? Are they interested in it? Are discussion boards and Twitter full of, uh, you know, hype about it? Uh, and how much money is it actually making? And I think one of the great uh, advantages of the platform economy, whether it's an app store, whether it's platform like Uber or something, a social network like Facebook, it's, you know, you can gauge both at the same time. Um, do you think that that's sort of the, the ideal that, you know, the conversation will map on to the commercial return pretty much one-to-one? Or is it always the danger that you've developed something that's, you know, profitable but loathed versus something that's liked uh, but will never cover its costs? <laughs> yeah, I think it comes down to the use case first. In, or, no, I mean, it's not the use case, the business case. So the business case is really important because the cost it takes you to develop the product or service, whatever it is, will be based on your anticipated future sales. So how many of, let's say, devices, device X, that you think you're going to sell and how much you think you're going to sell them for? Well, that gives you your, a lot of your development budget and your marketing budget. So the products don't necessarily need to be mainstream, don't necessarily need to be very high volume to pay off if the price per product is high. So if you're looking at a pair of AR VR goggles, for example, and they're three and a half thousand dollars each, you know, how many do you actually need to sell to cover your development budget versus something that might cost $50 or 50 euros? So what you will see though with all the social media um, platforms out there is the ability to really drive demand for a product. So if you can build that amount of hype, then you're creating more and more latent demand and the fear of missing out, of course, and that can help drive your volume. The thing is, you know, will you have that volume long term or will it be a short term case? So will it be a gadget that is popular just for Christmas or will it be a gadget that's got long term factor, for example? And also, will it be something that is just in one one niche or will it be hundreds of thousands of users, potentially? I think VR is a wonderful example of that because, again, the high unit cost, and it seems to get higher and higher depending on uh, which vendor you're interested in. Um, and yet, it always seems to appear in discussions about the next big thing. And it's been the next big thing for 10 years now. Um, you know, can well, I give you a stat? Go on. So, the the history of VR goes back to about eighteen thirty eight, <laughs> right? So when when Sir Charles Wheatstone first realised that each eye produces a different image, that was firstly really important to understand this idea of being stereoscopic. And then the first flight simulator was ninety four years ago in nineteen twenty nine. Right. So we still think that 
you know, VR is new and it's funky, but it's <laughs> it's really not. Like the first VR goggles were in 1935 called Pygmalion Spectacles. You know, so it's, I think it's still really funny that we look at the box for the Meta Quest or something in Smith's Toys, go, ooh, look at that. It's so new and funky, but it's not really new and funky. <laughs> you know, the the first virtual world is 1965 called the Ultimate Display. This is, you know, so I, I'm just picking out these to show that VR has been around for a really, really long time. And the question is, you know, how does it make the leap into, let's say, consumer adoption? And what the idea, like the, the phrase virtual reality comes from 1984. So we're getting a bit closer. Um, and then we got into the 90s, you had Saga games with their VR games, Nintendo with their Virtual Boy, um, the Oculus Rift is only 11 years old, 2012. So not not long ago. Then Facebook obviously bought them. Then you had the Magic Quest Pro in 2022 for a staggering, what, $1,500? And the Apple yeah. Vision Pro this this year. So it's it, <laughs> it seems a bit weird to put this forward. But given the slow-ish pace of adoption and the really high unit cost, it still feels like the technology is emerging. So I have an idea why, but I'll just, so but I'll let you ask me about that. Yeah. So if the pace is that slow, then you can still be quite confident about its uh, ongoing development and adoption. Then, well, yeah. So there has been traction for all that length of time in this concept of virtual reality and, and augmented reality. And the use cases continue to evolve. The devices continue to evolve. The idea of being able to see someone's eyes behind the goggles is this year's innovation. Um, and I've, I, someone has told me about the TikToks of people walking down the street wearing their AR VR goggles and how they're not landing on, you know, into <laughs> in the street lamps is a good thing. Um, so there's a, a new trend emerging there. Um, so the fact that you have some major brands making AR and VR headsets means there will be continued investment in the segment. I think it probably is a barrier for the smaller players, if there are any in the market, because, you know, how do you compete against Apple and against Meta and so on. I mean, you know, there were others in the market before, but, you know, they've become the big leaders. So we would think that um, there will just be more and more development. I think they'll probably make the headsets lighter ultimately and easier to wear and have more options. And chatting with a colleague about this, and we were talking about the idea of the assistive touch that you've got with the Apple Watch now, the ability to make gestures and do commands by putting your thumb and forefinger together or clenching your fist. So maybe you're going to be pairing the headsets with other commands over time. So yeah, still still developing. I think the price point will have to come down ultimately, you know, for, for higher adoption. And then we'll have to think, well, how much are we going to use them in day-to-day -day life? Like Apple's Vision Pro, is more oriented at apps that gaming versus gaming. And up to now, it's really been either kind of training, like for, let's say, driving or flying, whereas apps, Apple's uh, developments this year are taking it more into the app side. So, yeah, there's still a lot emerging in it, I think. Looking then at a fairly high profile piece of tech that failed, um, you don't have to look very far into Google's back catalogue of ideas to find glass. And I think it's a, a great example of a technology that was just pitched to the wrong people for the wrong uses. Um, uh, what do you make of glass's you know, uh, failure and perhaps ultimate res resurrection? Yeah, so it, Google Glass brought with it a huge suspicion of technology, in my view. The, the thought that you could meet a friend wearing a pair of spectacles, as they do, 
you know, and you know, they're actually recording your conversation or there's a camera taking images. So it became an object of suspicion rather than a, an aid. But I think there is a swing in the market again. There was a really interesting development this year in Stanford where students created AI glasses that give you speech transcription on the lens, or well, sorry, it appears to be on the lens for deaf people to help them essentially read what people are saying. And it doesn't have to be line of sight. They don't need to lip read on it. So I think the technology is developing really, really nicely. Um, and then we've seen successes and failures, not just with Google, but with others. So um, in 2019, for example, Bose, you know, the, the guys who make the speakers and so on, they began selling audio smart glasses to consumers. But the year after, they closed that operation because <laughs> <laughs> they weren't seeing the traction. And to me, that seems reasonable. Like, why would I put on a pair of spectacles to listen to music when there's already devices to play music into my ears? Like, that just doesn't seem mm. reasonable. Yeah. Um, there have there have been other uh, platforms, smart glasses platforms in recent years that can actually um, not just do the AR projection onto the lens, for example, but they also are made for people who are short-sighted up to minus five diopters. So that is much better because if, if you take your pair of spectacles and you kind of go, okay, that's great, but now I need to take off my specs so I can put on my smart specs, but now I can't read anything. <laughs> You know, so at least there's there's been a bit more cleverness like that. And some of the smaller platforms, um, like, was it Eversight or Lightshot? There's been ones called Vuzix and there's been ones called North. There's been ones by Toshiba. So there have been lots of different platforms in the, the glasses area. But there is a prediction that the smart glasses market is going to be $2.3 billion market. So it's not going anywhere. Wow. And what I think, yeah, it's, it's really big. And, you know, we talk about price point and early adoption and so on. So the, the AR glasses, I've looked at the best ones around at the moment. And the price points are varying anything from the Razer Anzu smart glasses. They all have the catchy names, of course, <laughs> for about $88. <laughs> up to, let's say, the Patriot Viewpoint Low Vision Glasses, which are designed, actually, this is interesting, for people who are visually impaired, who have macular degeneration, they're about $3,000. So, to be honest, like conditions like macular degeneration are really, really awful. So, if you can have smart glasses designed to tackle that, that's brilliant. So, I think we come back to the use case. You know, what are, what are we trying to solve with this technology? So the technology is, is invented that you can put computing, speakers, microphones, and so on, uh, projection systems into a glass. But what problem are you trying to solve? And so, I think yeah, as those problems get figured out, then you really, really get your market. Hmm. Sometimes we see products being rejected because they don't solve an obvious problem. Um, in particular, if you look at uh, Windows, every other generation seems to be very badly received. I mean, Windows Vista, very poorly received um, because there was nothing wrong with XP. Um, Windows 7, very warmly received because an awful lot of, me very many lessons were learned from it. Windows 8 and 8.1, roundly rejected. <laughs> Do not touch <laughs> Do not touch. Before coming back with Windows 10, which people were very, very happy with. And yeah. now we're on to kind 11. of, yeah, kind of an kind of incremental. Feels like 10, 10, and a, 10 and a little bit. 10 and a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, why do, you, why do you think Windows has kind of fallen into this pitfall uh, sort of trap of having poor alternate generations? I think there should be something in a business, and I won't I won't just say it's just just Microsoft. But if you're going to release something to market and make a big deal, you should know what you're making the big deal about. So, what is drastically different about the new iteration that is going to drive customers to want it, to need it? 
to feel as if they're really missing out on some new capability. I think if if Windows 11 had been heavily marketed as having lots of open AI capability built in, and that was the difference to Windows 10, we could have had a different experience. But instead, it's been a bit more iterative with, you know, Office bringing that to the fore and Bing bringing that to the fore and so on. So you're not seeing a lot of differences with Windows 11. You know, a few curvy screens, curved edges here and a few buttons moved to different places, but it's not drastically different. So I don't know, do companies fall into a trap of feeling like they should release something, you know, just to be seen to releasing something? That certainly feels that way. Yeah, it certainly feels that way, in particular in the mobile space, where we get a a Pixel every year, we get an iPhone every year. And, you know, on the show, we say, don't buy the first generation of anything, go to every other generation, because that's when you'll actually start to feel the the differences. Do do you think that's a a worthwhile perspective or have we been misguiding (laughs) people for years? No, it's the one I follow. Isn't isn't it this trick that you always go with the even numbers of iPhones? Mm. Um, there's maybe if you're investing in technology, you want to feel like you've got great value for your investment because there's probably, you can probably do what you do today with the device that you have or the software that you have. And if you are going to shell out an amount of money and quite often quite a decent amount of money, you want to know that you've got something really different. So I, I think there's nothing wrong in what you've been predicting. I just think it's how we perceive value. Mm. Like the product, if you do get one of those in between, I want maybe not in between is the right answer, but if you get every single upgrade, you'll get, uh, you know, the iterations to that point. If you skip an upgrade and go to the next one, of course, you're getting more iterations, you're getting more changes, so you're going to perceive more value from that. So it depends. Some people want every single change as it goes by. Some are happy to stay as they are, then go for a big one every few years. Hmm. Uh, over sort of the last 15 years or so, uh, we've seen a lot of very worthwhile technologies come along um, that indeed solve problems, but just seem to fail or, you know, unfortunately uh, land badly or have um just a very terrible, well, have an awful uh, launch event, uh, thinking of Tidal straight away. Um, and they kind of fall by the wayside. I, I, I'm looking at things like the Pono Media Player, wh- whose big um, selling point was lossless audio. Um, there just doesn't seem to be an appetite for lossless audio out there. It's uh, Why do you think that might be? You've got a superior format, but you just have an indifferent population. I think you, when you're considering bringing a solution to market, you should really be looking at how many people care about that <laughs> as an issue. You know, are you relegated to the enthusiastic creators who know how important that is? Or are you trying to get mainstream population and hope that you might attract 100,000 people in Ireland who care about that? Mm. Maybe you're limiting your, your pool to just. 5,000 people. And if that's your pool of interest, that's what we would call an addressable market. If your addressable market is really small, is that going to justify creating this lossless audio product, for example? Hmm. I think uh, over time we've seen technologies that would have been peripheral or just sort of knocking about and not being terribly interesting, suddenly finding their niche, finding finding a use, and then it feels like they're they're everywhere. And um, QR codes comes to mind straight away. Yeah, they're they're really interesting. There's something that seemed to vanish off the table for quite a while, and they started to come back, um, and that surprised me. But they they had nearly vanished, and it seemed to be a European thing. So they they actually originated over in Asia. And the, the reason they originated was because bar, traditional barcodes didn't have enough data and they wanted more data and also something that was more unique. Um, so that all started in Asia, but the adoption of QR codes in Europe really, really lagged behind the rest of the, the, rest of the globe, to be honest. Um, 
they are quite clever, you know, in terms of how they're set up. They actually look like the same pattern of a Go board, you know, that, that game that mm. the AI system won a few years ago. Um, and the little three squares that you see in the corners there, so you, the scanning device can orient it, basically. So it, it can say, oh, it's a QR code and it's this way up, rather than just being a square and not knowing how to read it. So that's, you know, they're actually there for a reason. Now, I thought that QR codes had pretty much vanished around the place for most of this year. And then all of a sudden, I was seeing them on TV and ads for boots. I was seeing them on packets of chicken and done stores. Um, I've seen them on bus stops. And, see, and one of the things that strikes me with QR codes is um, we all now have QR code scanners on our phones that we carry around all the time. And that's fine. But if you're going past a bus stop and you're driving or you're walking and you're not inclined to stop, you're not really, are you really going to stop and take out your phone and take a picture? I don't know. I kind of think QR codes are if you're static, if you're stopped somewhere long enough to bother taking out your phone to take the picture. And they have use cases in quite neat ways, you know, that bring, bring you to marketing sites and so on. Um, there's this concept of, it's called fidgetal, P-H-Y, whatever. And it's a blend of fidget, <laughs> I can't even talk now. It's a blend of like physical and digital. Um, so like if you are um, displaying a physical asset like a table card or so on and use QR code, it will take you through to a digital site. Um, and so I think QR codes had had gone by because we just weren't interested in scanning something with our phone and then going on to an, a new site. But it's it's definitely on a resurgence. Um, now, but they're used a lot less in Europe than they are in other countries. Like China's using QR codes on a really large scale to the point, I believe, that 50% of the population use codes several times a week. Like, and I can't think of a scenario where I would use QR codes several times a week. Mm. And like in, in India, there's over 9 million merchants accepting QR code payments. And it's just, it's a whole different scale there. And maybe Europe is on catch up. Um, it definitely feels like it is over the last year. Um, mm. So I'm I'm thinking it might be, you know, where QR codes are being used. Like I was thinking about seeing them on the ad on the television. Thinking, okay, now I have to pause the television walk up to the TV, well, or maybe do it from my chair, but, you know, now I have to focus my phone on the QR code on the TV to get through to the website that'll tell me where all these great products are for sale. Mm. You know, so I'm not sure that they're always deployed in the right way. Or, you know, it looks funky. It looks, you know, interesting. But I wonder if there a better way um, to do it. Maybe it's just easier to just write, search great products on such and such website. Um, yeah, so what's your take on QR codes? Do you know what? I, I was kind of uh, accepting of them again as that sort of gateway to, you know, for more information on. Um, until this week, um, I was in the office and I was asked, what's the, what's the password for the, for the Wi-Fi? And I discovered that my phone has a function where you can get a QR code for the uh, for the network and all you need to do is scan it and your phone will attach to the network i was like that is cool that solves the problem i like it use case <laughs> <laughs> yeah no a really good example i think my new router for my home broadband like that has a qr code and literally point to your phone and it will match it sync up the Wi-Fi and take it that you know the password because you've got as close as the router. <laughs> so you're probably allowed to be in that house. <laughs> Which just is a bit of a presumption. Yeah. Are there any technologies you feel are on the bubble at the moment that have pretty much had their their time in the sun or their, you know, their their window and now the the hammer is about to come down on them? Yeah. I'm gonna pick my you know Last year's favorite one of NFTs for that one. <laughs> and the reason I'm picking NFTs is something where I think the bubble is about, is should, should be bursting, but it hasn't really. Yeah, so NFTs are a really 
weird scenario where they're still rooted in this realm of digital artwork and digital audio and digital receipts, immutable, provable, trans- you know, receipts of different items. And the NFT volumes are still up. There's still thousands of NFT transactions every day. And there's a, there is a move to make NFT ticketing more prevalent. And that sounds interesting. And we've heard that Ticketmaster have a proof of concept going on to use NFT tickets. And they've done some trials with um, Band, I think, in America. But I'm still not fully convinced on why NFTs are needed mainstream. And the reason I'm not convinced yet on why NFTs are made it, needed mainstream is we already have lots of great ways to prove ownership of something. And I could see a use case where they could be used for proving ownership of something that's really valuable. Like you would want to know that if you bought the back catalog of someone's music or a rare painting, for example, that you would have proof that could not be um, contradicted that you owned that asset. But 75% of the NFTs that are bought out there are under 100 euro in value. So there's a lot of still trading of, you know, crypto punks and all these other digital art works. And, you know, there was a picture called Emerge recently. And the merge, you know, was split up into lots of different uh, buyers. It valued it at like $91.8 million for a picture, you know. And do you think, why why are people still buying little bits of digital art? And do they really want to, what are they going to do? Are they going to print it out and put it on the wall at home? Are they going to make it a screensaver? Do they have a metaverse or somewhere where they're going to make a gallery for all these pictures, you know, okay, maybe you're not collecting stamps anymore. Maybe you're collecting digital artworks, but who are you sharing them? Do people know you have them? Do you feel great? Um, it's, it's not, NFTs haven't leapt into the mainstream in my view, and they're still, it's, I think they have a use case in terms of proving ownership and proving the provenance of an item. And I think they could help in things like ticketing if you knew that the tickets you were buying online definitely were the legit tickets, for example. But I don't think you need them as an interaction to with your customers. So like there's a lot of talk in the ticketing world about, you know, you'll have an NFT for your event. It'll give you exclusive access. You can use them as your passes to the VIP area. You get exclusive merch that's only for the NFT fans. You'll get your early entry to buy the tickets early. You'll get some other great digital content. And what confuses me is that you could do all that today just by registering, you know, as a user on the either the band website or the ticket website. You don't really need an NFT for it. Like, and if you're worried about making your ticket into a collectible, you could do that anyway. You know, there are ways to do it. You know, so it's just NFTs are confusing to me about why we think they need to replace ticketing. I don't know that they do. I was looking at NFTs to see what are the use cases that are really going to drive their adoption. Ticketing is being touted as the next big thing. So I think if organizations are investing in ticketing and NFTs, they should really be clear about why they're doing something different that just can't be done by traditional ways. And the last thing I want to say on NFTs is I think they should divorce themselves from the cryptocurrency world. And why? what I mean about that is there's so many barriers to NFTs at the moment because you still have to interact through NFT marketplaces and with digital wallets and different types of currencies. So these are all barriers to interacting with NFTs. And even the NFT marketplaces themselves, they're changing. So OpenSea was a really big one last year. This year it's Blur. OpenSea's now let half its people go. It's, you know, so that's an awful lot of change going on and something that's still, I think, essentially emerging. So has the NFT bubble burst? 
not according to the stats about how much the market is worth. But equally, I still think it hasn't found its killer mass adoption use case yet. And that was Carol O'Carroll, Distinguished Engineer from Fujitsu, chatting with Niall Kitson. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. That's it for our show this week. Do check out some more stories online that we didn't have time to talk about fully in the podcast today, including uh, more on the ESB, spending big on renewables, car trawlers plan to promote technology careers for women, and can chat GPT be used to develop chemical weapons? You'll find those and more online at techcentral.ie. We're back again next Friday with a brand new show online and on RT Radio 1 Extra. Do remember to share our podcast with a friend. Just tell them to look up Tech Radio Ireland on Apple, Spotify or YouTube or wherever it is that you like to get your podcasts. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Al Kitson, as always, have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Remember, you can get the latest Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Share the knowledge and invite a friend to listen. Search Apple, Spotify, or YouTube for Tech Radio Ireland or listen with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Tech Radio is produced by dustpod.io for techcentral.ie. From me, Artemis, live long and prosper. Tech Radio.